when's the last time uh, you took a walk through a cemetery? Weird question, right? Uh, for me, though, it was uh, four years ago, uh, 20, summer of 2015, my wife and I and our two kids, uh, Noelle was pregnant with our third, our son Jack, at the time. We were living in Japan for the summer. Most of you know by now that uh, back in 2012, Veritas started partnering with a local church in uh, a city in Japan, and ever since then, we've been sending teams over each summer to do college ministry. Well, that summer in particular, uh, between the tiny, and I emphasize tiny, little apartment, which was on one side of town that, that our family was living in, uh, and the church that we were working in, uh, which was across town, uh, was a Buddhist temple. Uh, if you've been, even if you haven't, uh, Buddhist temples are pretty common uh, like we would see a church building around here. So there's a Buddhist temple right in the middle of, of this path that I take every day, except this temple was, it was kind of hidden, uh, not, not so much hidden, but it was tucked off the road, kind of out of view from everything around it. And so one day I'm driving, not driving, I'm riding my bike home, um, and I don't know if I was bored or just particularly curious. I decided that hey, this would be a good opportunity to go just walk around a Buddhist temple. I've never done it. have no idea if you're supposed to do that. I was totally ready to play the lost foreigner card if need be. Um, but there I was, walking around this Buddhist temple. And while I'm on this property, uh, I notice, one of the first things that I notice is off to the side is, is a cemetery. And if it wasn't weird enough that I'm walking around this Buddhist temple to begin with, I then decide, hey, it's probably a really good idea to just go walk through this Buddhist cemetery for some reason. I have no idea. I'm actually sure that I wasn't supposed to be doing that, but, but whatever, there I was. And as I'm walking around this cemetery, um, obviously I'm looking at things. In a lot of ways, it was similar to a cemetery we'd see here, but in a lot of ways, it was different. And one of the ways that it was different is um, there were there was several like main headstones, right? But with some of the main headstones, and those main headstones, you know, had names and dates and that sort of thing written on them. But attached to some of those headstones um, were, were these kind of like side smaller headstones. And, and what was interesting to me in particular is that these side headstones, they didn't have names, they didn't have dates, they didn't have anything like that on them. Instead, they had uh, pictures, pictures engraved into these these smaller side headstones. Some had pictures of people, presumably family or friends. Some had pictures of, of company logos. Uh, I remember one having a picture of a vehicle engraved into it. Now, I'll admit to this day, I, I still have absolutely no idea what those head, headstones are, why they exist. I'm sure there's a logical explanation for it all. But in that particular moment, Standing in that cemetery in Japan, I couldn't help but wonder if in some way for those people in those graves, those images depicted the things that were worth living for in their life. The things those people treasured most. Family, friends, career, material possessions. I couldn't help but think about, is this how these people wanted to be remembered? Is this what they wanted people to see about their lives? These were the things that were important to them. I honestly don't know. But before long, though, I started thinking not about them, but about myself. And there in that cemetery, I, I started to wonder, Kyle, 
what are you building your life on? I started wondering to myself, what do people see in me? What do people see as important to me? What do people see in the way that I'm living my life? I recently came across a uh, New York Times op-ed that caught my attention. The reason it caught my attention was because the title of the article was, Is Your God Dead? And as I read, I realized he was directing his question at Christians. Why? Well, well, as he goes on, as this columnist goes on to say in various ways, he says in his experience, he often sees in others, especially those claiming to be Christians, what he calls a, a, a dead faith, a bankrupt theology, a faith in God that is inactive, calloused, underwhelming, often mechanical. He says he often sees in so-called Christians a faith in God that, that lacks love and compassion for people, especially those in need. He says he sees a faith in God that often lacks mercy and forgiveness. He sees a faith that often lacks justice. And because of all this, as the article unfolds, this columnist, he surmises that God is powerless. And because God is powerless, he's dead. Or at the very least, he's insignificant, he's irrelevant. Now, regardless of the merits of this dude's particular arguments, which admittedly I find problematic, he raises a not-so-subtle question worth considering. Namely, is that me? Is that how I'm living my life? Is that how you're living your life? See, what do people see when they look at how we're living our lives? What do they see us building our lives on? What sort of impression does your life have on other people? Now, let me press that a little bit more. What does your life say about Jesus Christ? Does it say he's dead? Does it say he's powerless? Does he say he's irrelevant? Something else? See, that New York Times columnist, he knows something really important. He knows that the way that you and I live our lives is a powerful witness to others about what we're building our lives on and why that matters. How you and I live is a powerful witness about what we're building our lives on and why that matters. Now, of course, this isn't just a contemporary idea, right? See, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Peter, he was saying the same thing to his audience. A group of Christians living in exile, people living as foreigners in a culture that was suspect at best and hostile at worst to their belief in Jesus. See, remember, if you've been tracking with us through this series, Peter's audience is caught in the unbearable tension, the unbearable tension of living faithfully for Jesus in a culture that wanted nothing to do with their faith, living faithfully for Jesus in a culture that wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But how would they live? What would other people see about their lives? Let's pick up in chapter two, verse four. Peter says this, he says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter uses all sorts of imagery in these verses, particularly that of stones. That's because in the ancient world, the cornerstone was the most important stone in a building. Everybody would have known this. Why? Well, because the cornerstone was the first stone to be laid in the foundation of a structure. And every subsequent stone was set squarely against it to ensure that the walls were level and straight, to ensure that that the, uh, the, the form of the building took proper shape. And so the cornerstone's not only important because it's the first stone laid, it's important because it was the single stone that determined the placement of every other stone in the building. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, God, through the prophet Isaiah, declared that one day he would lay down his own cornerstone, a cornerstone upon which God would build his entire kingdom. Now, Jews in the Old Testament, they they understood Isaiah's prophecy as a reference to the coming Messiah, the the long-awaited king. Here in 1 Peter, Peter Peter applies Isaiah's words to Jesus. Jesus is the living stone, Peter says. Jesus is the cornerstone, the chosen, the precious cornerstone, the cornerstone of all of God's work here on earth. And furthermore, he says that followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus are living stones. Living stones being built into a spiritual house, a place for God to dwell, a place for God to be seen. See, Peter says that that we're stones. As weird as it sounds, we're stones, people who are being built over time. Notice he says being built not built already, right? It's a process. We're being built over time. We're being invited, chosen by God to take our place in God's story, to take our place in God's great project of bringing healing and redemption and restoration to a broken world, a world broken by sin. I see, sometimes I hear people talking uh, about following Jesus as if it's just a personal, private matter, as if all that matters is our individual faith, our personal relationship with Jesus. We say that that's the only thing that's important. Now, of course that's important. You can't follow Jesus without a personal relationship with him. But following Jesus, at least according to Peter, is not just an individual assignment. It's a group project. See, Peter says that it it takes many stones to build a house. And similarly, faithfully following Jesus means building our lives first on him, but doing so in relation to other people. And he says as the house is being built up, every person Every stone has a role to play for the integrity and the well-being of the whole. See, what happens when stones aren't put together properly for a building? What happens when stones aren't squared to the cornerstone in a structure? They fall apart. The building eventually crumbles. 
See, the integrity of the house depends on stones playing their particular role. And so what happens when Christians fail to build their lives on Jesus as the cornerstone, when Christians fail to faithfully play the role that God has given them in his story? Well, I think just like that New York Times columnist, a watching world surmises that Jesus must be powerless. He must be irrelevant. He must be insignificant. Maybe he's even dead. See, if you're really honest with yourself, what are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? Not just Tuesday nights, not just Sunday mornings wherever you go to church, not just whenever you go to small group, but what are you building your life on? Are you building it on Jesus? Really? Or are you building it on something else? See, sadly, Peter knows that for many, and this is what he's saying to his audience, for many it's something else. Look at verse seven. He says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. read a story the other day about a dude strolling through the aisles of a, a, a mineral show, a rock show, because apparently that's a thing. Um, and he happens to notice this, this ugly, in his description, bluish violet stone about the size of a potato. Right? So he sees this ugly blue rock about the size of a potato and it's sitting like in this bin with a bunch of other rocks. And he says, you know, as he sees this stone, it kind of catches his eye, goes up, and he starts talking to the seller. And um, after kind of inspecting it for a little bit, he, he calmly tells the seller, how much do you want for that? He asks him, how much do you want for it? Seller says to him, you know, to be honest, I was hoping to get 15 bucks, but since it's so ugly, I'll sell it to you for 10. Boom, sold. Now, you know where this is going, right? Because that wasn't just an ugly rock. As it turns out, it was a 1,905-carat natural star sapphire, which happened to be 800 carats larger than the largest sapphire of its kind ever at the time. Once it was certified, it appraised for over $2 million. Now, imagine being the guy that sold a 200 or $2 million sapphire for 10 bucks because it was ugly. $2 million for 10 bucks. I was hoping to get 15, I'll give it to you for 10. It's ugly. Right, he didn't see the value. That seller didn't see the value, he missed it. Or maybe he chose not to see it. See, the reality is, is every human being has to choose whether they're going to trust Jesus or reject him. Trust Jesus, the Bible says, and you will never, never be put to shame. Honor him and you will be honored. Reject Jesus, though, and eventually you will fall, according to Peter. You will fall into his judgment. It's a serious thing to reject Jesus. Now, sadly, many people miss Jesus. They reject him because they don't see his value. They don't think he's worth it. He's just another ugly rock sitting in a bin with a bunch of other rocks, not a precious cornerstone, not a precious sapphire. Because of that, he's certainly not something or someone worth building our lives on. 
so they say. See, sometimes this rejection is explicit. It's obvious, right? I reject that. But sometimes it's more subtle. This is how I see it sometimes in college ministry. You're at church. You're at Veritas. But Jesus has little value to you in your life. He's just the means to an end. Sometimes it... Sometimes Jesus is a means to the end of getting the cute guy or girl sitting next to you. Sometimes I see people call themselves Christians, but but being a Christian is far more about getting in with a friend group or feeling better about yourself than it is submitting your life to him and actually trying to grow in your relationship with him. Sometimes I see people saying the right things about Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a church, maybe you went to a school, but you disregard his word. You follow his commands when they're convenient for you. You're not really serious about fighting your sin. See, Peter's forcing us to wrestle with that question. Is Jesus our cornerstone, or is he just some ugly rock that looks like a potato sitting with a bunch of other ugly rocks? Right? What does your life say? What does your life say about what you're building it on? Jesus the cornerstone or potato rock? Kind of killed the mood there, didn't it? See, if we're going to faithfully play our part in God's story, if we're going to faithfully play our part in God's story, if we want to convince a watching world that Jesus isn't dead, that Jesus is in fact who he says he is, that Jesus is in fact worth building our entire lives on, that his gospel brings transformation to our lives, then you and I have to be people. We have to be people showing evidence of what that transformation looks like. What does it look like? Verse nine. But you are chosen people, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you are not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter says Jesus' followers are a chosen people. Now catch this, because it's really important. You, we didn't do anything to earn that. Jesus didn't choose you if you follow him because of you doing something. He didn't follow you because you cleaned your life up. He didn't follow you because you obey all the right things, because you say all the right things, because you do all the right things. No, God in his mercy, he comes to us. He comes to me. He comes to you. He comes to his people, and he says, I choose you. I want you. You're mine. Now, I've talked to enough of you to know that some of you have a hard time believing that God could ever want you. Look at me, he does. Not later, not after you clean your life up. No, he wants you right now, mess and all. That's exactly why Peter says you're God's special possession. Now I want you to think about that for a second. Think about God telling you, saying about you that you are his special possession. Think about that, the creator of the world, the one who holds galaxies and planets 
and stars in his hands, the one who spoke towering mountain ranges and vast oceans and beautiful sunsets into existence. The one that looks at his creation and says, man, that's good. He looks at you and he says, but nothing compares to you. Nothing. See, do you know what it means for God to say that you are his special possession? It came at a significant cost. A significant cost. Peter picks up on this in verse 10. He says, that, he says, once you are not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You see, that's a quote, it's a reference to the Old Testament book of Hosea. If you aren't familiar with Hosea, Hosea tells the story of a husband, Hosea, and his adulterous wife, Gomer. Gomer eventually gets pregnant, and because of her unfaithfulness to Hosea, Hosea, get this, he names one of the kids, No Mercy. That's the name. Another translation says, Not Loved. Baby comes out, no mercy, not loved. He has another kid. This one he names, not my people. Imagine having those names. Hi, I'm no mercy. Hi, I'm not loved. Hi, I'm not my people. That's the names he gives them. But his wife's adultery, it doesn't stop, right? It gets worse, actually. So much so that at one point, uh, Gomer runs away from Hosea to be with other lovers. She leaves him. It's a bleak picture of their marriage, and yet God does something crazy. He intervenes, and he tells Hosea, he comes to him, and he says, don't give up on your wife. He says, pursue her, love her again, find her. And that's what he does. He pursues her. He finds her, and in spite of her sin, in spite of her unfaithfulness to him, he pays a bride price. He buys her back. He has to go to his wife's lover and pay a price to get her back. And he brings her home to be together with him again. Now, in the book of Hosea, God uses their story. God uses their marriage to say, in the same way, In the same way, the people who have run away from me, the people who have turned away from me, the people who have rejected me, the people who have run to be with other lovers, someday I'm going to buy them back. Someday I'm going to show no mercy, mercy. Someday I'm going to bring them home and they will be my people again. Peter picks up on this story. And in referencing it, he, he rightly sees all of this in light of Jesus. Jesus pays the ultimate price to buy back those us, me, those of us who've run from Jesus as fast as we could chasing other lovers, as fast as we could chasing other lovers. Jesus buys us back, but not with money. You know the story. He buys us back with his life his blood so that one day we could be home with him forever see I want you to I want you to hear this do you realize just how treasured you are by God 
See, the greatest news of the gospel is that though you're far more sinful than you could ever know, you're more loved by God and Jesus than you could ever imagine. Though you're more sinful than you ever know, you're far more loved by God in Christ than you could ever imagine. He chose you. He bought you with his blood. He delights to show you mercy. He delights to call you his. Do you believe that? See, when you start to understand just how treasured you are by God and what it cost him for that to be true, only then will you abandon the worldview of self-interest for the worldview of self-sacrifice. Only then will you start to stop living for what feels good, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you most comfortable, and instead start to see yourself in light of God's mission to the world. In light of the story that he's telling and the role that he's given you to play. You see, our special status as privileged, our special status as God's prized possession, it should lead to action, not apathy. That's why Peter, he he calls us a royal priesthood. That sounds probably a little bit weird. What does that mean? We're priests? Well, in the Old Testament, Priests were intermediaries between God and his people. They were people that specifically represented God to others with particular actions and and what they said and how they lived. And Peter says that's no longer just the task of specific people in a specific time in a specific place. No, Peter says that's now the responsibility of every Christian. Every Christian represents God to a watching world. Every Christian is to embody the character and mission of God in the world. And to do that faithfully, we have to be willing to enter into the unbearable tension of living faithfully for Jesus in a culture that often wants nothing to do with him. How do we do that? Two things that I think we see from the text. First, is that we have to be people that tell others about Jesus. We have to tell other people about Jesus. Verse 9, Peter says that we should be people. Of all people, we should be people. People who declare, people who proclaim the praise of Jesus. Why? Because he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's a question. How often do you tell people in your life what Jesus has done? What Jesus is doing in your life, how often do you talk to other people, not just your Christian friends, your non-Christian friends, how often do you tell other people about Jesus? It's a tough question. But part of living faithfully, part of representing God in the world and playing a part in his mission, it means spending time telling other people about him, who he is, what he's done, what one day he will do. See, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, is that a normal part of your life? Is that a normal part of your day? Is that a normal part of your week? Telling other people about Jesus. The other day I read a a study put out by the Barna Group. It said this, some fascinating things. It said that almost all all practicing Christians, almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus. 
That's the first thing. The second thing is that the best thing that anybody that could ever happen to someone is for them to know who Jesus is. So it says, though almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about him, and the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus, it goes on to say, though those things are true, they're not disputed, almost half of millennials, I know you guys aren't millennials, but you're close enough, and it's still relevant, 47% of millennials say that evangelism, sharing our faith in Jesus with the hope that others would believe in him, say that that's at least somewhat wrong. Almost half of practicing Christian millennials surveyed in this study say that evangelism is wrong. See, if, if being a Christian means being a witness for Jesus, and if the best thing that could ever happen to people is for them to know who Jesus is, why do we spend so little time talking about him? Why don't we talk about him more? See, I think for a lot of us it's fear. Fear of upsetting someone. Fear of offending someone. Fear of ruining a relationship. Fear of what others will think about us. Fear of what people are going to say if they know that, yeah, we actually do buy what Jesus is selling. This is fear that keeps us silent. But, but Peter encourages us in this text. He says, we can't be people that back down because our culture finds it offensive to talk about Jesus. Instead, he calls us to be people who are willing to proclaim Jesus' praises, people who are willing to proclaim about the one who has called us out of the darkness of sin, out of the darkness of despair, into his marvelous light. See, people on this campus are listening to you. What do they hear? What do they hear? What are you saying? David Hume, well-known atheist philosopher, he was once asked why he was going to listen to a pastor, George Whitfield, preach a sermon. The, the, the person says, you don't believe anything that this dude's saying. Why are you going to listen to him preach a sermon? And Hume responded, yeah, but he does. Hume, uh, Whitfield believed what he was saying. You see, there's something, here's the point, there's something compelling about genuine belief in Jesus that even people and culture who want nothing to do with him will be compelled by him. Now, Hume didn't become a Christian, but he was willing to go listen to a guy that believed what he was saying. Playing your part in God's story, your part in God's mission to the world, means telling other people about him. But it also means, according to Peter, resisting from sin, saying no to sinful desires. Look at verse 11. He says, dear friends, these are his friends. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. See, whether you realize it or not, sin is waging war against your soul. 
The Christian life means fighting sin actively. And by the way, that too is a group project. You have to have people in your life helping you fight sin, helping you resist sinful desires. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. But I want us to notice that that Peter's also saying fighting sin, resisting sinful desires, it's far more than about just us. It's not just about you, and it's not just about me fighting our sin. There's actually a missional element to it. Why does Peter say to abstain from sin? Why does he say to not give in to temptations? Why does he say don't conform to the sinful culture around you? Because he says when we resist giving in to sin, and we genuinely build our lives on Jesus, there's something attractive about it. There's something attractive about living a faithful life for Jesus to a watching world. See, when we're obedient to Jesus, when we live in obedience to him, when our relationships with people are are genuine and caring, not manipulative and self-centered, when our work is done with thoughtfulness and excellence and not laziness, when our worship is sincere and authentic, not sterile and mechanical, when we're sacrificial with our time, not selfish, when we care about the world instead of just abuse it, when our words give hope and life instead of tearing other people down, when we live godly lives, Peter says, a culture that doesn't want Jesus becomes curious about him. A culture that rejects Jesus turns to him, turns to us, and wants to know more about him because they see how we live. They see how we live. This music team comes back up. I've been thinking a lot about the Olympics lately, uh, probably because the summer games are going to be in Japan next summer, and I want to go. Small plug if you're interested in going to Japan in 2020. Um, One of my favorite things about the Olympics every year, I love sports, but one of my favorite things about the Olympics every year is the opening ceremony. Why do I love the opening ceremony? Well, I love it because in large part, it's the host country's shot to show a watching world what their story's all about. It's a host country's shot to show a watching world. I mean, millions of people around the world watching this country tell their story through this ceremony. See, in many ways, that's exactly the picture that Peter is painting for us in these verses tonight. God is putting together, God is building living stones. He's establishing a new household. Why? Why is God bringing all of us together to show a watching world what his story is all about? So what do people see when they look at your life? What will they see next week over spring break? What do they see on the weekends? What do they see in the moments that you're not at church? What do they see in classes? What do they see when you're stressed out? What do they see in private moments? What are people on this campus going to see about your life when they look at it? Are they gonna see a life built on Jesus? Are they gonna see that that's something worth building their own life on? going to see us living for something else. Peter's encouraging us. I'm encouraging us. Build your life on Jesus, and Jesus is going to use that to draw more and more people to himself.
Amen.